Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Our context is this, at the end of chapter 12, we had Herod Agrippa getting killed by God because of his killing of James, the son of Zebedee, and his imprisonment of Peter. And then right after that, at the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Paul had come down from Antioch where they were working together and they carried a poor relief offering to the church of Jerusalem. They went back to Antioch and that's where they are now in Antioch, the Syrian Antioch, but right north of Jerusalem, north of Israel, about 15 miles from the Mediterranean coast where present-day Syria butts into the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where they are at Antioch and we'll take up the story here in verse 1, Acts 13. In the church that was Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, it's amazing what we can dig out of these names here. First of all, before we get into the names, let's look at the gifts, prophets, and teachers. Now, notice that it wasn't the whole church that sent out this mission team on the first missionary journey that we're getting ready to look at. By the way, this audio is going to cover the ministry on the island of Cyprus. I'm going to stop there on the first journey. The prophets and teachers, not the whole church, sent out Paul and Barnabas on this mission trip. There were only five brothers, two of whom were sent out, three of whom stayed behind. This was not a church meeting, and I emphasize this because this is an example of the separation of the church and the work. Uh, Watchman E has done a good deal on this, and I have seen a bunch of grief. I mean, I saw the biggest mess you ever saw. A friend of mine came to Beijing to do mission work. He wanted to uh, minister in the underground Chinese church, which he did. Had a fantastic mission trip. And meanwhile, back at home, they were saying, you needed to get the permission of the church to come. You needed to get us to send you out. And you didn't get permission. And it caused a big stink, and the church blew sky high. And I felt like in watching this, I said, you know, if the church had just looked at this first and realized it wasn't the church at Antioch that sent them out. It was brothers. The church is separate from the work. The work is separate from the church, as Watchman Nee has done a good job of pointing out. Now, that doesn't mean that the missionaries, when they go out, even though they're not controlled by the church, they make their own decisions as a, as a missionary work team, they do come back and report to the church. Of course, they're in the, they're in the gospel ministry together, but it doesn't mean that they have administrative control over one another. And likewise, a mission team coming in to encourage a church has no business telling the elders of that church what to do. They just encourage them. They don't order them around. They don't tell them what to do. All right. So it wasn't the church at Antioch. It was just five brothers that started this great mission trip. Nowhere, let me repeat this, nowhere in the New Testament does a church have authority over a mission team. Never. Nowhere. But on the other hand, the mission teams never ignored the local churches. If people would just realize that, all that tension that always develops between missionaries and sending agencies, and of course today we use agencies instead of churches, I won't get into that, but it's the same principle. The sending agencies have no business telling the missionaries what to do. They don't know what's going on in the, on the field. The missionaries do. Not the people in their offices back at home in their air-conditioned offices. Now, prophets and teachers, these five people are called. The prophets and teachers were not distinct offices, according to Adam Clark. They might be, and of course he calls them offices. I prefer to call them gifts. Nowhere does the New Testament call gifts offices, but I know what he means. He says these gifts of prophets and teachers might be vested in the same persons. And that's true. So a person could be a prophet and a teacher at the same time. But I will say this. There's sort of a built-in conflict 
between prophets and teachers, kind of like men and women. You know, if men and women learn to get along, woo, happy marriage, happy life. But boy, there are some built-in contradictions there that have to be overcome, likewise with prophets and teachers. The NIV Study Bible just fudges it over and says they were the leaders. But again, that's not really accurate, is it? Because they weren't leaders. Prophets and teachers are not, are not leaders of the church. Why, if they were leaders, why didn't Luke call them elders or pastors or overseers, the typical term for a church leader? Clark, Adam Clark calls these people elders. The elders sent them out. Well, again, I say, where does it say elders? It says prophets and teachers. It doesn't say elders. Again, there's a whole lot of confusion on that verse, in my humble opinion. Now, this guy Barnabas is sent out. He's mentioned in several places in Acts, starting in Acts 4. Joseph, a Levite and Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. So from there we learn that he had another name, Joseph. He was a Levite, and he was from Cyprus. He was born in Cyprus, which is where they're getting ready to go to. And that's probably one of the reasons why in the natural the Holy Spirit chose Barnabas to go, because Barnabas was from Cyprus. He was an encourager. His name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. Also, I don't have the verse in front of me, but I know from my memory that he had sold land at that first Pentecost and shared the proceeds with the apostles so they could help the early Christians there at the first Pentecost live in, live when they didn't have any means of living. So he might have been wealthy to, to own land. The, another place we see uh, Barnabas is in Acts 11.22 when he heard that preachers had come up from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene and Cyprus and Phoenicia and had gone up to Antioch. And he was in Jerusalem at the time, and so the church of Jerusalem sent him up to Antioch. That's in Acts 11:22, And then in Acts 12:25, Barnabas and Saul, well, let me back up a minute. Also, when Paul returned from his three-year stay in the Arabian Desert and Damascus, he came to Jerusalem. The disciples didn't trust him because he'd been persecuting Christians, and so Barnabas was the go-between. He vouched for Paul's conversion experience, and then he helps probably the brothers did, and he was probably one of them that sent him off to Tarsus to get him safe from persecution. And then later he went up to Tarsus, found Paul, and brought him to Antioch. And so they're associated together at Antioch. So Barnabas had a lot of doing. He was a big leader in the early church. In Acts 12:25, this is the last chapter after they completed their relief mission. This is when Barnabas and Saul took the money down to Jerusalem during a famine during the reign of Claudius. Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. That should be returned from Jerusalem taking along John, who is called Mark. So Barnabas is in the lead here. He was a leader in the church in Antioch, and he's listed first probably because he was a leader. Now let's look at some of these other names. There is Simon Niger. Niger is Latin for black. Why was he called that? The NIV Study Bible suggests that it's because he was dark-complected. Adam Clark says because his hair was black. So we don't know, but he was called Simon Niger. The word is Simeon, actually. And Simeon suggests a Jewish background, as the NIV Study Bible says. I've been calling him Simon. That's another way to say that. But the H. Holman Christian Study Bible here actually has it as Simeon. So there we have a Jewish guy in the so-called Gentile church at Antioch. They were both Jews and Gentiles in the church there. The next guy that's mentioned is Lucius the Cyrenian. Now, Cyrene, of course, is the capital of Libya on the North African coast. And by the way, you can pronounce that as Kyrene. I've looked that up. I say it two ways as the mood hits me. We'll call it Cyrene. Now, the word Lucius is a Latin name, so now, and that means Gentile. So now we know that there are both Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. Simon Niger is a Jewish guy. Lucius 
from Cyrene, Lucius the Cyrenian is Gentile. Now the NIV Study Bible says that Lucius the Cyrenian is probably in the second group of preachers who had come to Antioch. Some of those were from Cyrene. And we know about this in Acts 11:20. But there were some of them, and the them means those in Jerusalem who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen's death. But there were some of them, those scattered persecutees, if you will, some of them Cypriot and Cyrenian men who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The NIV Study Bible said this was the second group of preachers who came to Antioch. I wonder who the first group of preachers who came to Antioch were. My memory is not good enough to pull it out right now. But at any rate, these Cyrenian preachers came, and Lucius was probably one of them. Now, the next guy that's mentioned as praying and fasting to send out the first to send out Barnabas and Saul on the first journey is a guy named Menaean, or Menachem in Hebrew, as NIV Study Bible says. Menachem, or Menaean, is the foster brother of Herod Antipas, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, if that's true, now, that's, now let me say that's not a slam dunk there. The Homer Christian Study Bible has a close friend of Herod. The NIV says that Menaean was one who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which sounds like a foster brother. I'm going to assume that's true. Now, he would have been there in the church at Antioch, very useful to them because he could let people know about the thoughts of Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas, he wasn't a friend of the church. Notice the irony here. The man who helped execute Jesus has a foster brother who believes in Jesus as the Son of God. So now notice that we're, I haven't mentioned the time frame here. This is about 47 or 48 AD, the time of the first, the most likely time for the first journey. Herod Antipas lost his job in 39 AD when he was exiled to Spain. So he's been gone now for about eight years, six, uh, seven or eight years. And so Manan is mentioned as the foster brother or the good friend, the close friend of Herod Antipas. That doesn't mean that Herod Antipas is still around. But while he was still around, he would have been useful for that reason. And last but not least is our brother Saul. He was amongst those five groups, five, five men who were praying and fasting, as we see in verse 2, or in verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 says this, as they, those five brothers, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. So the Holy Spirit says, hey, of you five, two of you are going to go on this trip. The other three are going to stay home. Now, they were fasting and they were ministering. What is ministering to the Lord? Well, here's some options that could have been they they were ministering by fasting. They were fasting, which is just another way of saying they were ministering. Could be. It could be praying. The very next verse says, in fact, they fasted and prayed. So I would, I think praying to the Lord is ministering to the Lord. Or it could be, well, let me, let me go give give you a quote from Adam Clark that that supports the idea that they were praying. Liturgunton signifies performing the office of praying, supplicating, rendering thanks, hence the word liturgia, liturgy, liturgy, the work of prayer. That's a very fancy way of saying they were praying. Ministering could be worshiping. The NIV, in fact, in their translation, has worshiping instead of ministering. They were worshiping to the Lord in fasting. But the question is, is what does worship mean? You know, there's two senses of worship. One is just praise, giving God glory. But then there's also performing service, the works of service to God, which is also a meaning of worship. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, the word denotes the performance of official duties of any kind and was used to express the priestly functions under the Old Testament. Here, it signifies the corresponding ministrations of the Christian church. Well, I, I agree that that's what worship means. That's standard. Nobody disputes that. But I do dispute whether that's what they were doing here. For one thing, it was just five brothers. It wasn't the whole church. That's a big church up there. And there was just five brothers. Oh, that wasn't the whole church. There was no official ministering going on in the sense of performing a service of worship. It wasn't going on. They were probably just praying and fasting and praising God. So I'm going to say if the ministering here is something different than fasting, I'm going to say it was praising God. So we can combine verses 2 and 3 and saying these five brothers were, were praying, praising God, worshiping, fasting, and praying. Now, application point here, if you're getting ready to go out and do a work for the Lord, you better worship God, and you better pray, and you better fast. That's all I can say. I, you talk to any missionary. I've done missionary work in China, and I'm telling you, when you get ready to do something, all Gehenna breaks loose. And you, I got used to it. I just said, well, God, here we go again. And, you, and I've talked to other ones. People do it, and they just start saying everything that's gone wrong. Before, as they get ready to minister, you better pray and you better fast and you better worship. And God will give you the victory. He will. I mean, let's face it. Paul and Barnabas were very successful on their first missionary journey. God likes successes. The Holy Spirit says set apart. Paul was set apart and he actually understood that because in the book of Romans, for example, in Romans 1.1, Paul says this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And I say, I assume he was called here by this prophet, whoever prophesied over him, set him apart. The Holy Spirit set him apart for the gospel of God. Now, set apart also has the idea of sanctified, you know, set apart from the world separated from the world and set apart to God, consecrated to God. So he was consecrated. He was set apart. He was sanctified. Not only Paul, but also Barnabas and Saul. He still calls Saul. He's going to change his name to Paul in this audio. And you notice Barnabas is mentioned first because Barnabas was probably the leader at the church of Antioch. He was there before Paul got there. Notice that it's called the work. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work. Another word for that is for the ministry, but that word's gotten kind of trite to me, so I like to use the word work, and it's separate from the church. It's any kind of work that you do apart from the church, whether it's evangelism, whether it's picketing an abortion clinic, whether it's running a food bank for poor people, whether it's running an evangelistic ministry, whether it's Kanye West having Jesus is King concerts, whatever. That's a work separate from the church. Now, this verse says the Holy Spirit said. Now, whenever I read that, I'm always curious. Well, how does the Holy Spirit say something? You know, how does that happen? Well, as I was reading this, I thought to myself, oh, it's through whoever prophesied over him. That's how the Holy Spirit said it. And I was looking through my notes, and I was happy to see that the NIV Study Bible, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all three agree with me. So I got that one right, I think. John Gill suggests maybe it was an articulate voice that all three prophets heard. I don't think so. He says maybe it was an internal impulse in all three minds of the prophets. Well, maybe so. That just talks about the mechanics of how the prophets heard and then they spoke. But I think it's the Holy Spirit said through the, the, the Greek words of the prophets who spoke out into the air. Set apart Barnabas and Saul. Now, why, did, why were Barnabas and Saul chosen? Well, only God knows for sure, but I'm sure it's because of their unique gifts and temperament. Barnabas was from Cyprus, you recall. He was a leader. Saul, as we know from, he wasn't really a leader yet, 
But by golly, he was preaching the gospel as soon as he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he never stopped preaching at times at times when he could have got himself arrested, like in Jerusalem that time when he stayed there for 15 days disputing with the Hellenistic Jews. He was a leader. He was an evangelist. He had guts. And he needed to have guts on this journey, and that's why the Holy Spirit chose him, I'm sure. Verse 3, and when they, those are, that's the five brothers, well, actually the other three brothers besides Barnabas and Saul, Simon, Simeon, Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, the Cyrene, the Cyrenian, and Manan, or Menachem, the, the foster brother of Herod, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on, the ball, on them, that's Saul and Barnabas, they sent them away. They sent Saul and Barnabas away. When did they fast and pray and lay their hands on them? At the time when the Holy Spirit spoke, or at another time after the Holy Spirit spoke, John Gill suggests it could be either one. doesn't matter. The fasting and the praying preceded the Holy Spirit speaking and the, and the setting apart for their journey. Now, they laid their hands, the three brothers laid their hands on Paul, Paul Barnabas, and Paul. The question is, is why? Now, John Gill denies it was because it was an ordination, an official ordination, an official appointment of somebody to an office in a church. And I agree thoroughly with John Gill. Here's what Gill says, quote, This was not an ordination. The Apostle Paul particularly was not ordained an apostle by man, but by Jesus Christ, who personally appeared to him. Apostles didn't get their, their appointment by people laying hands on them. And I would point out to you, there was no ecclesiastical authority involved. There were prophets and teachers, individual men. Three men laid their hands on them. That they did not represent the church at Antioch. They weren't even the elders of the church at Antioch. When you, when you think about ordin laying hands on for ordination, that's what you think about. You think authority is being given to people. There was no authority from the church. The apostles were independent of the authority of the church, as I said earlier. And John Gill makes the point that uh, Simeon Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Cyrene Cyrene, the Cyrenian and Menaean were inferior in authority to Paul. So why would they be laying hands on Paul? They might have been equal in authority to Paul. I don't know if you can say they were inferior, as Gill says. But at the most, they were equal to Paul. They didn't have more authority than Paul. And usually when you have an ecclesiastical organization, you've got somebody that has more authority ratifying an appointment. In the case of an apostle ordaining an elder, he ratifies what the elders have done. But he's the guy that started the church, and so he says, yeah, I like, I like these elders that you've chosen, and he ratifies it. That's not what's going on here. So what was the laying on of hands for? Well, John Gill continues with his denying that it was an ordination, an official ordination. He, he concedes that there is a likeness to Jewish ordination of elders, which, which was done with laying on of hands, but this is done outside Israel in a Gentile area in Antioch. So he's saying, don't confuse the Jewish laying on of hands to make an elder, to appoint an elder, don't confuse that with what is going on here at Antioch. Gill points out that, rather, the laying on of hands is a symbol of blessing used by the Jews. When they wished any blessing or happiness to attend any persons, they would lay their hands on them. And I think that's what it is. It's a blessing. And also I'd like to point out that when you lay hands on somebody, it makes those praying feel closer to those being prayed for. So this laying on of hands is a great thing. It's not just for ordination. Now notice this word, they, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them. Who does the they refer to? Well, obviously it's referring to the prophets and teachers listed in verse 1. If you go by the context, that's the nearest noun referent to the pronoun here, they. The context clearly shows that. But Adam Clark says it's the whole church at Antioch. Where does it say it's the whole church at Antioch? Where does he get that from? I don't know. That seems to be a perduring myth 
amongst teachers in the Christian church. Adam Clark says that the fasting and praying and laying on of hands did not qualify Saul and Barnabas because they were already qualified when the Holy Spirit set them apart. And that's, that's, that's a good comment. We go to verse 4 in Acts 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, Seleucia, excuse me, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was the port city of Antioch. It was 15, 16 miles to the west of Antioch as you headed toward the Mediterranean Sea. The Orontes River came up between the Lebanon and Anti-Lebanon ranges, ranges in Phoenicia. And presently Lebanon came up through those mountains, got up to Antioch, and then took a sharp left, a sharp western turn, and dumped into the Mediterranean Sea. And five miles before you got to the mouth of the river at the Mediterranean Sea, you have this seaport called Seleucia. It's famous. It's mentioned in secular history a lot, actually. And naturally they went there because they were getting ready to sail to Cyprus. Notice they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They were sent out by prophets, but the Holy Spirit gets credit here for sending them off. Now, why did they go? Let's talk about Cyprus. First of all, why did they go there? Here's four reasons that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown mentioned. First of all, it was Barnabas's native country. It's likely that his friends and relatives might receive the gospel on Cyprus. That makes sense. Second reason, it was close by. Third reason, very practical reason. Third reason, there were a lot of Jews in Cyprus, so the synagogues were a natural place to preach the gospel. And of course, when they, the, the apostles went out to preach the gospel, they always went to the synagogues first, and then if the synagogues believed, that's fine. If they didn't, persecuted them, turned them over to the Romans, whatever they did to them, threw stones at them, then they would leave the synagogues and start preaching to the Gentiles, maybe in the open places, in the marketplace, or whatever. But teaching to the synagogues was the surest course for reaching Gentiles, because Jewish proselytes and Hellenizing Jews would leave the synagogues converted and then go tell their Gentile friends. So that's the third reason they they preached in Cyprus, because there were a lot of Jews there in the synagogues. And the fourth reason is some Cypriots were already Christians, as I've already pointed out to you. They had teachers from Cyprus who had went over to Antioch to preach, so that means that they were obviously Christians because they were spreading the gospel. We go now to verse 5 in Acts 13. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. That's John Mark. Salamis was on the east coast of the central plain of Cyprus. If you look at the map, it's, Cyprus is a horseshoe crab-shaped island right to the west of Antioch. And right to the s- south of the southern Anatolian shore, the southern shore of Asia Minor very easily identified on a map. So Salamis is on the east, and we're going to finish up this audio when Paul gets to Paphos on the west of Cyprus. Now, Salamis is famous for something here. As John Gill points out, the famous Greek statesman Solon was buried there, which I didn't know. I think that's kind of interesting. He's a famous guy in Greek history, if you like ancient classical history. The city was Greek, so they were going to the Gentiles. Even though they were preaching to the synagogues first, there were a lot, you know, there was Greeks everywhere. Everywhere they went, there was Jews and Greeks. And Salamis was the capital of Cyprus, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, even though the Romans ruled from the other end of the island on the west, on Paphos. Now, John Mark came as their helper. He's only called John here, but it's John Mark. He might have been the man who fled on the night of Jesus' arrest when he had a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body and it fell away as he escaped. Oh, that's pure speculation. It is not speculation that he wrote the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, the Go Gospel. Mark accompanied Barnabas and Saul on this first missionary journey, as we've just read here. But then, of course, they had a falling out, as we'll see later, because Mark bailed out on the journey. 
when they got to Pamphylia in southern Anatolia. He was especially associated with Peter. 1 Peter 5.13 says this, The church, this is Peter writing, The church in Babylon also chosen sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. So Peter calls Mark his son, and the scholars all say that that's where Mark got his information to write his gospel was from Peter. Mark's mother, Mary, had a house in Jerusalem. Acts 12, 12, when he, Peter, realized this, realized that he was awake now, not in a vision after he got sprung from jail in Jerusalem by an angel, or by angels, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. So she had a place to stay to pray there. And notice that John Mark came along not as a preacher, not as a teacher, not as a prophet. He came along as a helper. And I'm telling you something. Every mission team needs helpers, the go-to guys, the bottle washers, the people who handle logistics, the people who get you out of trouble with the cops when they start looking at foreigners and becoming suspicious, that kind of thing. They're invaluable helpers. It's, you know, women are supposed to be helpers of men, and everybody says, oh, you know, she's not swinging through the corporate jungles, so therefore all she's doing is staying at home and helping her husband. What a terrible low-life thing she's doing. That's typical feminist attitude. Listen, helping is a wonderful thing. Nobody try being a master carpenter without a helper to hold the darn boards so he can nail. Try doing anything without being a helper. Helping, Help is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If I recall correctly, I forgot where it's listed in the, one of the list of, of gifts. It's a gift. comes from God. John, John Mark was a helper. We go to verse 6 in Acts 13. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, going from east to west, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. So here we got a Jewish magician. Paphos was at the western end of Cyprus, as I said, about 100 miles from Salamis. It was the headquarters for Roman rule. Let me read you a quote from Gill about Paphos. Paphos, a city on the seacoast in the island, island of Cyprus, formerly famous for the sacred rites of Venus and the verses of the poets, which fell, Paphos, which fell by frequent earthquakes, and now only shows by its ruins what it formerly was. That was in the 1800s. Paphos, at some point in his history, got leveled by earthquakes. Here's what Adam Clark says about Paphos. There was probably no town in the universe more dissolute than Paphos. Well, Adam Clark never heard of Washington, D.C. Well, maybe he heard of it, but he didn't realize how bad it was, or how bad it was going to be. Here, Venus had a suburb temple here. She was worshipped with all, here she was worshipped with all her rites, and from this place she was named the Paphian Venus, the queen of Paphos, etc. So Paphos was a pagan place noted for the worship of Venus. We go to verse 7 in Acts 13. I take it up in the middle of a sentence. I really shouldn't have divided it there. Let me read verse 6 and go to 7. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, verse 7, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man named Barnabas and Saul, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Sergius Paulus did, not Bar-Jesus. Now, proconsul is the head of a senatorial Roman province. There were two kinds of Roman provinces, ones that belonged to the Roman Senate. They're called proconsul. Uh, the leaders of those provinces are called proconsuls. And then if you have a district, a province that's occupied by the military, just taken over and hasn't had time to be organized yet, those belong to the emperor, and they were called imperial provinces, and they were ruled not by proconsuls, but by procurators. Pontius Pilate, if you recall, was a procurator, as was Felix and Festus at the end of the book of Acts. They were procurators. They reported straight to the emperor. The proconsuls 
belonged to the Roman Senate. Now, that's a minor detail, but it points out how accurate Luke is as a historian. Many people have pointed this out. He's great with little details. And Paphos was a senatorial province and therefore was ruled by a proconsul, and so he labels Sergius Paulus a proconsul. Deus Cassius, the famous Roman historian, the ancient Roman historian, confirms that Augustus, Caesar Augustus, gave Cyprus to the Senate. There have also coins been found on Cyprus stamped with the name of proconsul. So we see that Luke is an incredibly accurate historian here. Now, I notice this Sergius Paulus is a man of intelligence. He sought to hear the word of God. I put those two things together because I think any intelligent person ought to seek to hear the word of God. You don't have to believe it at first, but don't be so darn closed-minded. You're not even going to listen to it. And I know I've been in college atmospheres all my life, all my working life. And I'll tell you, you will never find people more closed-minded than liberal, atheist, agnostic, unbelieving college professors. They don't even want to consider that the gospel might be true. They're closed-minded, but not Sergius Paulus. Now, why was Sergius Paulus, or excuse me, Bar-Jesus, the, the, the Jewish magician, why was he with Sergius Paulus? I have to speculate here. Maybe he lived with him as a counselor, according to John Gill, and maybe he was with him only occasionally as a counselor, but for some reason he was with Sergius Paulus. And it will, I wouldn't doubt if Sergius Paulus is trying to say, saying, how about you give me a little prophecy here, Bar Jesus, and tell me how to deal with these factions in my government. I wouldn't be surprised. Notice that Barnabas is mentioned here first. This man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul. What does that mean? Well, I could say there's no special reason. You know, a lot of people like to say, a lot of feminists like to say, talking about Priscilla and Aquila, they say Priscilla's visited first. Therefore, she was superior to Aquila, or she was the leader of Aquila. Well, but the problem with that is you go to another place and Aquila is listed first. So we're supposed to say because Aquila is listed first that Aquila is the leader of Priscilla? That's nonsense. Of course, most of what feminists say is nonsense, but that particularly is nonsense. And so I tend to think, well, maybe it doesn't mean anything except Barnabas is mentioned first. John Gill speculates the reason he's mentioned first is he was a native of Cyprus and thus better known. And that makes sense. But let's talk about authority within the apostolic work team, which is a big issue for those of you who like missions and church government, can we say that Paul had authority over Barnabas on the first journey? I really don't think so. Barnabas is listed first. Sometimes Paul is listed first. There's probably reasons why, but I don't see where one is has authority over the other. I suspect they made decisions collegially and consensually within that work team. We go to verse 8 in Acts 13, but, but Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, Elimus is a Semitic name, as the NIV Study Bible says. It means sorcerer, magician, or wise man. And so it could be that the translation of magician is Elimus, not Bar-Jesus, but the translation of magician is Elimus, is Il Elimus because Elimus means magician. That actually is controverted by the scholars. That's a linguistic problem I'm not going to worry about too much, but the point is he had a Greek name, Elimus, 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 he had a Greek name, Elimus, and he had a Jewish name, Bar-Jesus. And his name means sorcerer or magician. The NIV Study Bible says that's probably a self-assumed designation. He called himself, I am Elimus the magician. Now, why was he opposing Paul and Barnabas? Well, of course, anytime you got people that are operating by the devil, which is what Elimus was, it wasn't just sleight-of-hand stuff he was doing, I'm sure. It was demon stuff. 
And naturally, demons are going to oppose, be opposed to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that he might have had a financial pecuniary interest in opposing Barnabas and Saul because he was working for the proconsul there, Sergius Paulus, and maybe the proconsul, once he realized that Elymas was full of it, might fire him. He might lose his job when he realized that there was something more powerful than his prognostications or his demon, demon tricks. Acts 13, verses 9 through 10, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, and here is the first time that Saul is called Paul on the island of Paphos in the presence of Sergius Paulus. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, on Bar-Jesus, on Elymas, and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? That's real gentle, kind preaching there, wasn't it? Now, the name Saul means asked of God, as the NIV Study Bible said, and that's what Saul's been called, but now he's called Paul. Paul is a Roman name. So, again, you see the two cultures and everywhere you see in the Bible. You've got the Jewish culture and you've got the Greek culture uh, together. Paul was a Roman name, and the word in Latin means little dwarfish. This is from Adam Clark. So Paul may have been small at his birth, or he might have been small as an adult. Small at his birth, Clark suggests. Small as an adult, Jameson, Foster, and Brown suggest. We get a hint of this in 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Paul is writing about himself, referring to his critics, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal present is, presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. His personal presence is unimpressive. He might have been short. But at any rate, he's called Paul from now on all the way through Acts. Now, why? Here is his name switched. Some people suggest because he was successful in converting Sergius Paulus. Paulus is going to, we're going to see in verse 12 that he believes. But, and I think is that might be because Paulus, the name Sergius Paulus is close to Paul. I don't know. I don't know if that would have something to do with it or not. I think more likely it's because he's now entering into the Gentile phase of his ministry. Because Sergius Paulus was a Gentile. They preached to the Jews in the synagogue at it's Salamis on the East Coast now, and the West Coast is speaking to Sergius Paulus, a Gentile. And, and since Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and since Paul is a Gentile name, they started calling him Paul. I think that's reasonable. Now you will notice that the order of the names is now Paul and Barnabas. Or actually, I should say, Barnabas is not even mentioned here. But Paul takes, let's, let's put it this way, Paul takes the lead from now on on this trip. When they get back to Jerusalem after the first journey and they go to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, Barnabas is mentioned first. All the people kept silent. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul. Well, that's reasonable. Barnabas was the early leader in Jerusalem. He would probably be mentioned first, naturally mentioned first by Luke. And on the mission trip, Paul was apparently the leader, even though I don't think he necessarily had authority over Barnabas. I believe that he... Barnabas looked up to Paul as the leader, so Luke naturally emphasizes Paul. That's my speculation. At any rate, I wouldn't make too much out of whose name is first. And notice how Paul called him the son of the devil. Son of the devil. I mean, you know, that's not very polite. That's sort of rude. That's sort of not very seeker-friendly. Well, of course, Bar-Jesus wasn't seeking, was he? He was opposing. Jesus did the same thing with the Pharisees. And, you know, some people you just got to lay out. Some people you try to win with winsome words. And some people, you've got to oppose them at all costs. And this guy was one of those types. 
Acts 13, verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, Paul continues, speaking to Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, fell upon Elymas, also known as Bar-Jesus. And he went about, Elymas, seeking those who would lead him by the hand, looking for some guidance in his darkness. <laughs> it's a perfect sort of a poetic justice. You know, somebody trying to lead people in the darkness of hell, and he himself is dark. Somebody trying to make people spiritually blind, he's physically blind. Now, notice that Paul did a double miracle here. First, he predicted that he's going, that Elymas was going to be blind, and then he made him blind. Two miracles at one. A, a remarkable miracle that had a great effect. Now, note, as we see in the next verse, when Sergius Paulus gets converted. Now, note, I, I've got an interesting theological question. Notice Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Lord, to the apostles, and they got struck dead. They were Christians, but... Elamus was a non-Christian, and he didn't get struck dead. He only got blinded. Why the difference? Well, I think the answer is, is because Christians, when they sin grievously, they're sinning against a greater light. Too much who has been given, much has been required. And Ananias and Sapphira sinned against a greater light. Adam Clark points out that Elamus was struck blind only temporarily to give him time to repent. And according to ancient traditions, he indeed did convert to the Lord. I hope so. But Jameson, Foss, and Brown say that that tradition that he got converted is hardly to be depended on, so we don't know. But the reason why he was not killed is because God a lot of times chastises non-believers so that they will repent. He's, 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 he's not going to just strike everybody dead that doesn't believe in him. But if you're a Christian, you better be careful about what you do dealing with the Holy Spirit, as Ananias and Sapphira learned. Acts 13, verse 12 then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, he was amazed at the teaching. He was also amazed at what he saw, I'm sure, because he says he believed when he saw what had happened. And what did he see? Well, he saw Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas, get struck blind. And when he saw that, he says, my gosh, this guy, Paul, he predicted that the man would be struck blind, and then he blinded him. That takes a miracle. I think I'll believe in Jesus. So he was amazed at the teaching and the miracles. And again, I love to point out all the way through the book of Acts, all the way through the Gospels, teaching and miracles went hand in hand together. And today, unfortunately, cessationists only want us to have teaching. They want to throw miracles out. It's like going into warfare without a gun. I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense. This is one more example of miracles leading to salvation, being a signpost that points to heaven, as John in his gospel said so clearly. I am finished with the ministry on Cyprus, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, and Paul and Barnabas's and John Mark's first missionary journey. We will take up the story in the next audio as they sail from Cyprus and go to the mainland of southern Anatolia, southern Asia, Asia Minor. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>